hear ye, hear ye. Court of Appeals of the State of Indiana is now in session. The Honorable Margaret G. Bob of Indiana County presiding. The Honorable Cale J. Bradford of Marion County. The Honorable Rudolph R. Pyle III of Madison County. You may be seated. Good morning. This is in the matter of the Indiana Board of Pharmacy against Paul Elmer. Mr. Jones, you are asking to reserve six minutes? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. And Mr. Kraft is not participating? That's right. Okay. And Mr. McNamara, you're just here all by yourself. All by myself, Your Honor. Well, I have some support here. Well, I mean at council table. You may be heard. May it please the court. After Paul Elmer's petition for judicial review ended with a divided vote on transfer, the parties returned to the trial court to then litigate his federal civil rights action. The trial court first correctly dismissed that suit on the basis of the numerous threshold legal defenses to his claims. And it then abused its discretion by granting Mr. Elmer's motion to correct error, reinstating that complaint, purporting to enter judgment on it, and then assessing more than $81,000 in fees against the Indiana Board of Pharmacy. This court should reverse that judgment. First, Mr. Elmer's federal civil rights claim arises under 42 U.S.C. section 1983, the vehicle to assert federal civil rights. One of the first steps in that is analyzing the identity and capacity of the defendants who are sued. In doing that, when we look at the three sets of defendants that are sued, first, the Indiana Board of Pharmacy itself as a state agency is never subject to suit under section 1983. It's not a person capable of being sued. And so the trial court correctly dismissed the board in the first instance. And then for the members of the board, when sued in their official capacities, are sued as state officials. And they are subject to suit only to pursue prospective injunctive relief for the purposes of enjoining some ongoing violation of state law. But again, as the trial court correctly determined in the motion to dismiss, any claim for prospective injunctive relief is moot in light of the end of the petition for judicial review and the termination of the licensing proceedings. And so that claim, too, was properly dismissed. And then turning last to the individual capacity claims against the board members who are sued as persons. Those claims can proceed under 1983, but are subject to various defenses, including the assertions of personal immunities. And there are two reasons why those claims were also properly dismissed and wrongfully reinstated. First, as this court held only a couple years ago, when members of a licensing board are adjudicating a licensing dispute, they have to stop you for a minute. And I know that's an important question for us. But one of the things that seemed to be raised in the briefing at one point that the appellee had not sufficiently pled the liability of the defendants or the appellants in their individual capacity, the board members. Are you now ready to concede that that was stated? In the amended complaint, yes. As I understand that point. There was a sufficient articulation that they were seeking relief against them in their personal capacity. Yes. Okay, so we're over that. So back to what you were discussing, okay? 
So, so back to the defenses to that claim. The first one is a quasi-judicial immunity from suit, which is a complete bar to any claim for relief against the licensing officials. Again, as this court held two years ago, when licensing uh, boards uh, adjudicate licensing disputes, they're actually acting in the functional capacity of a judge and are entitled to the same immunities from personal liability to ensure the effectiveness of their decision making. Um, I don't understand there to be any dispute at all that that immunity would apply given the nature of their act uh, so long as the board uh, was not acting in the clear absence of all jurisdiction. And here the board... What would be complete absence of jurisdiction in your opinion? Um, I think uh, under, under this court's authority and the Indiana Supreme Court's authority, it's a complete absence of jurisdiction over either the subject matter, uh, over both the subject matter of the dispute as well as the person. Um, well, let's say I received in the mail a summons from the pharmacy board. I don't, never had a license, and they wanted to take some action against me. Would that be a complete absence of jurisdiction? I think that would be a, a tougher call. Now, and provided, I think... Is the answer yes? It, it looks closer to it. I think the, the reason I don't want to immediately say yes is, is two reasons. First, the board has jurisdiction over some unlicensed persons. Um, an applicant for a pharmacist license in the first instance is not a licensed person, but they've come to the board. So the board has some theoretical jurisdiction. Now, I don't think that applies in, in your honor's hypothetical, but um, you know, it, also you'd have once, if the board served effectively a person with, or if the person was effectively served, that can be enough to trigger personal jurisdiction, even if the complaint itself ultimately needs to be dismissed. But again, that's not the situation we're dealing with here. Mr. Elmer was a longtime licensed pharmacist who operated a compounding pharmacy in the state of Indiana and was subject to the board's jurisdiction in that manner. Um, so the board had jurisdiction over Mr. Elmer as a licensed pharmacist, even despite the expiration of his license as, as a matter of law. Isn't a uh, 1983 action, um, you know, uh, a remedy uh, that a plaintiff can take when uh, a defendant is acting under the color of law. So for instance, the, the pharmacy board or the individual members were acting under color, color of this jurisdiction, but isn't the real uh, question whether or not they abused that, uh, that position and gone rogue to the extent that they brought this lawsuit against Mr. Elmer, that that would relieve them of acting under, <coughs> excuse me, or make them a perfect defendant because they're acting under the color of law and abused it, and that's why there's liability? Um, two answers to that. First, uh, the, the acting, under, uh, acting under color of law is a essential requirement for a 1983 action, so that's a threshold requirement. And here I think there's no dispute that the licensing board, when acting as the licensing board, was acting under color of law. But there still needs to be an actionable violation of federal law. Um, it's, there's, it's very well established and long held, and, and we cite a couple cases in our brief, Swarthout v. Cook being one of them, that violations of state law themselves do not constitute violations of federal law. Um, those are, need to be analyzed separately. So even if state law doesn't authorize some particular conduct, that doesn't mean there's been a violation of federal law, and 1983 provides a remedy. So, so let me try and make my question more direct, all right? 
I know that you do not concede that the pharmacy board's actions were frivolous, all right, when they brought this uh, and maintained the action. But for the purpose of my hypothetical, even if one were to assume they did this, uh, would this still, under your argument, not be a violation under Section 1983? No. And that... Um it wouldn't be a violation of 1983, and that gets into the second component, separate and apart from quasi-judicial immunity, which is whether there's any federal constitutional right against litigation, reasonable or frivolous. And that constitutional right has never been recognized by any court, and Mr. Elmer certainly doesn't cite any authority suggesting that such a right exists. So let me make sure I understand the point you're making. That Your position is that regardless of whether or not the actions were frivolous, it still does not invoke 1983 because the state cannot be a person and the members were charged in their, as to their official capacity. Would that be a fair statement of your position? Um, that is... I'm not saying my... I'm just saying your That's not position. our entire position, but yes, that's a fair well, statement. To that small part. Yeah, yes, okay. but even for purposes of the suit against the individual members and in their individual capacities, there would still need to be a federal constitutional violation. And there is no, there's certainly no enumerated constitutional okay. right against. So, in addition litigation. to the first prong that I said, the second part of your position is it still wouldn't invoke individual capacity liability because there's not a constitutional right. That's right, Your Honor. Okay. You, you would concede that due process is a constitutional right? Well, 14th Amendment. So, absolutely, the 14th Amendment. Their argument is your abusive process as I understand it, amounted to a due process. And, and while the list that's been found in case law is out there, it's not an exhaustive list. That's as I understand Elmer's argument. Uh, I understand that to be his argument too, I guess. Uh, so first, I think we can, we can set aside any procedure. Uh, Mr. Elmer abandoned in the, in the trial court and on appeal any sort of procedural due process violation that's in his brief. And so when we turn to substantive due process, the idea that, and what, what that would protect is the idea that under no circumstances could the, could the Board of Pharmacy revoke a expired license, which is really a question of state law, because state law could, could authorize that or could not have authorized that. Um, but the proposition would be, for there to be a substantive uh, due process right, state law could never have authorized revocation of an expired license. And that right is nowhere enumerated in the federal constitution in the 14th amendment or anywhere else and so then we turn to well the recognition of unenumerated substantive due process rights requires a litigant to satisfy the test set out in dobbs and glucksburg and the u.s supreme court has been very clear that those rights require a historical review recognizing that this right is embedded in the concept of ordered liberty and the history of the united states and there is no evidence that a right against licensing discipline satisfies that test, and Mr. Elmer makes no effort to satisfy that test, which alone, I think, forecloses that uh, vein of substantive due process. I want to take you back to, your, to the complete absence of jurisdiction. You said that the, you made it sound that the licensing board has jurisdiction over Mr. Elmer. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna change my hypothetical a little bit. Let's say that today, March 2023, for some reason, the licensing board, given the case law that we have, summons Mr. Elmer and wants to take some action 
against him. Would that be acting in complete absence of jurisdiction? We know today, under the statute, he has an expired or invalid license. Would they be acting in complete absence of jurisdiction? Well, I, your Honor's hypothetical actually presents an, another interesting issue, which is the General Assembly amended the statute after the Supreme Court denied transfer and expressly granted licensing boards, including the Board of Pharmacy, the authority to discipline uh, expired licenses. Assume and, that the law was but it, before that. But, uh, but, and get, given the, this court's decision in Elmer 1 and the denial of transfer, I think the, I think the answer would be no. If the law hadn't changed, if there were some future hypothetical um, uh, situation where the board tried to, to discipline an expired license, It would look more like the board doesn't have jurisdiction, but I think what I want to make clear, though, is the question is not, for purposes of quasi-judicial immunity, the question is not whether or not jurisdiction existed at all. The question is whether it was clear and uh, that the, it was clearly apparent to the judicial officer that they didn't have jurisdiction. It's a clear absence of all jurisdiction. And so what that looks at is going in, did, did the board know it didn't have jurisdiction to act? And I think... Uh, given that it wasn't until this court decided Elmer won that it was made clear that the board didn't have authority to discipline a, a license, it would not have been, it certainly was not apparent before then. And this court and the Indiana Supreme Court had but never Could you make before. the argument? The language of the statute <coughs> then, under section B or subsection B, uses the word invalid. And if his license is expired, What's the, I guess, what's the point of taking, and this is Elmer's, Mr. Elmer's argument, how, how do you take action against an expired license? It, it's not in existence. And wouldn't those administrative officers know that? Well, I, I disagree that it's, I mean, we have, taking Elmer one a settled law and what it said. Um, my, but, my question is, right. even, even without Elmer one. Right. But an expired license is still a license. Uh, Paul Elmer still held or still had was assigned a license, a specific license number. He could have applied for reinstatement. He would receive the same license back. It's the way driver's licenses work or attorney licenses work. They don't cease to exist. And the reinstatement but you can take no action under them. Well, and under the prior law, the board could take no action against the expired license. But of course, what the board was authorized to do with expired licenses was to. Um, uh, delay reinstatement to investigate possible discipline. Um, so there were avenues for the board to act on expired licenses. And I think given the absence of clarity um, on the law and, and the board pursued good faith arguments that it did have that authority, um, its positions taken weren't frivolous and, and fees were inappropriate. So if there are no further questions, I reserve the rest of my time. Thank you. Mr. McNamara, you may be heard. Thank you very much, Your Honor. May I ask leave uh, to introduce my two sons that came to watch this argument today? It's, it's your time. My middle son, Eric, I think some of you may know Eric. He was uh, Justice Rucker's law clerk for two years. And my youngest son, Gregory, he said he'd never seen Dad in court, so uh, he asked if he could come today. Nor has that. mine, so... Thank you. Your honors, may it please the court. I, I have 
several comments to make as to both the brief and the procedures that have been followed by the state in this particular matter. Uh, they keep saying it was a divided Supreme Court. Well, a divided Supreme Court affirms the decision of this court, as we all know. And uh, Justice David recused himself from that procedure. Justice David knows the family very well, so that's why he recused himself. The briefs filed by the state somehow include an introduction which uh, has nothing to do in this case with the issue, the issue in this case, which is attorney's fees. They did this in the first case and again in this. Also, they failed to tender volume two of this record. Uh, they filed the brief on Friday. They didn't file the appendix two until Monday, which is a clear violation of the appellate rules in this case. That introduction is simply a smear attempt uh, on Mr. Elmer. Yes, he was convicted of an offense. Why, why isn't it relevant? There is no authority to file an introductory uh, to begin with, but it's irrelevant in this case because the only issue in this case is attorney's fees. We've already had the prior decision. Well, your, your basis for attorney fees, at least under the state statute, is it's frivolous, is it, if I'm correct? Yes. Is that, okay. Yes. Well, wouldn't the prior federal proceedings and the history of this case be relevant in I'd, determining whether or not it was indeed fr frivolous and had no basis in fact or law? I don't think so, Your Honor, because this court in the first case said there was no jurisdiction of this board to do what it did. Uh, irrespective of what happened before. But we didn't know that until September of, it wasn't settled until September of 2021 when transfer was denied, correct? Uh, yes, the opinion came down June 8th. So all of their actions in this case happened long before that. Yes, yes, Your Honor, they did happen long before that. <clears throat> so um, as I understand the record, the parties agreed to to bifurcate these issues that we're discussing today from the issue what I'm going to call an Elmer one. All right. Yes. <clears throat> and uh, um, if it's in the record, why was that done? Because it seems to, it, it begs the question, wouldn't that court have been in a better position to determine whether or not, uh, you know, these actions that were brought by the board were frivolous, which is kind of the bound, as I, as I perhaps understand it, the bottom line is, were their actions frivolous? And that's, that's the basis of both your state court claim for fees and what must be present for a 1983 claim? Uh, Judge, that was well known by uh, Judge Dietrich, the deputy attorney general is trying this thing, and uh, we mentioned it numerous times below. So it, it well, I, I, I know it was, it's not hidden. I was just curious, wouldn't wouldn't that appellate court have been a better position to determine whether or not fees should have been assessed on that action? And you all, by agreement, set that aside. I, it, it, I'm a little perplexed, I guess. Not that it well, matters, moved, but it's just more yeah, of a curiosity. Yeah, I moved to set it but. aside because let's get the liability issue settled first because if that's determined in our favor, 
then we can go to fees. If it was determined against us, there's no reason to seek fees. Okay, I don't want to use up any more of your time on that. Thank you. I understand your response. Okay. The, the state ignores the liberty interest, which is in uh, the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And I think this illustrates uh, a liberty interest because, uh, Judge Pyle, as you pointed out, there's no jurisdiction over the subject matter. There's no jurisdiction over the person. Once his license expired, uh, it's void, invalid. As this court said in the first opinion, that's subject matter jurisdiction, and jurisdiction over him ceased when the license expired also. Uh, the state ran to the legislature after the opinion came down and uh, put in a vehicle bill uh, right at the end of this 2021 session to add uh, an expired license in the definition of uh, a, uh, <coughs> I'm losing the word, anyway, it would add. But isn't what happened after irrelevant to the holding of your case? Yes, ma'am. The fact that the legislature did something? Yes. Okay. But the Supreme Court of the United States has said there's a clear uh, issue of, subs of substantive due process right free from licensure action. Uh, this is the Supreme Court case of um, one more page, Washington v. Glucksburg, which we've cited in our brief uh, several times, as well as Indiana High School Athletic Association versus Carlberg. Uh, the protection of an individual liberty, certainly I think we would all agree, uh, as you pointed out, Judge Pyle, if you, somebody brings you in uh, to an administrative agency uh, when you don't have a license, uh, they don't acquire jurisdiction. I think your colleague, though, would, would argue that this case, Mr. Elmer's case, is a whole lot different than the hypothetical that I presented because he did have a license at least at one time. Do you think that makes a difference? No, sir, I don't. Once it expires, it expires. And, uh, you know, how long would you stretch that out? Five years later, they can do it? Ten years later? Twenty years later? Uh, to me, it's not a valid argument whatsoever. So, uh, in assessing fees, it yes. seems like a trial court and appellate court, as they review it, has to be very cautious because it's kind of like you're playing Monday morning quarterback. You know what the interpretation of the law is after the fact, all right? Uh, nobody knew what the interpretation, I suppose you believed you knew what the interpretation, you were correct, was of the law, okay, uh, as to the ability to suspend a already expired license. But the other side didn't. So when it comes down to bringing claims or defending claims, lawyers are asked to be able to predict, I suppose, whether the claim or the defense is frivolous, primarily taken for the purpose of 
harassing or maliciously injuring the person. And for you to prevail on either of the claims, uh, at least you convinced the trial court of that, but that's the bottom line. If I assume there, that a, right was, uh, a recognizable right was violated, that it was not done in a quasi-judicial role, you would still have to basically prove that, which is also the basis of the, the fee award under state claims. Uh, why was this action that was brought by the pharmacy board based on the law that was known at the same time within that definition? Well, at the same time, Your Honor, we filed a motion to dismiss before the initial hearing where we set this all out. We cited the statutes to them. They were well aware of what the law is, and I would think any attorney that looked at that and looked at the law and the statute that applied would come to the same conclusion we did. We don't have jurisdiction over this thing. His license has expired, it's void. Uh, and as they argued before the trial court uh, and the Court of Appeals, <coughs> excuse me, the purpose of the revocation was to make sure he couldn't practice. To protect but wasn't this, the in some respects, a case of first impression of defining that particular statute? I'm sorry, ma'am. Wasn't this case? essentially a case of first impression defining that portion of the statute authority to to do this i'm not sure it would be a first impression here it may have been before the courts but i think by reading the statute uh you can't come away with any other conclusion if you're honestly reading the statute uh it's void there even their own regulation well apparently so, two people on the supreme court had some concern well we don't know what the concern was, Your Honor. They could have uh, wanted to affirm the entire opinion. We don't know. Can I take you to uh, attorney fees? Uh, I believe you filed a notice of additional authority, uh, the Cavallo and Allied Physicians case. Yeah. Uh, now, were you citing that case for the standard of review, or were you also wanting to argue something related to the facts in that case? Uh, standard of review mainly, Your Honor. Okay. Uh, what I did is the clerk was kind enough to send out notice of the panel ahead of time this time, first time I've ever seen that. But uh, I uh, did research on each of you to find out uh, what your position was on uh, attorney's fees and the uh, discretion of the trial court. Well, at least in that case, that case involved uh, an employment contract that specifically allowed for attorney fees yes. for the prevailing party. Mm -hmm. That case seems to be quite different from what we have here, isn't it? Oh, it's an entirely different okay. case. But I was looking at the abuse of discretion <coughs> of the trial court issue in, in all of these cases that I researched. Fair enough. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. To the extent that it's in the record, uh, the trial court initially denied your request for attorney's fees and then you filed a, a motion to correct error, I believe, and, yes. uh, and you've always been a convincing lawyer, all right, and you were convincing you. in that hearing, and, and the judge changed uh, his mind and awarded the fees. What came to light in that hearing, if it's in the record, to the extent that, that, that the judge would change their mind on this subject? Uh, was there anything that was precisely discussed well, there were numerous uh, that might aid us in our review? There were numerous errors in it. Uh, one, it had the attorney's fees awarded to us of over $100,000. Uh, 
it, it just was a mishmash, and uh, we filed a motion to correct errors. Uh, historically, I have always liked to give a judge a chance to take another look at something uh, before uh, appeal or anything, and uh, we just filed a motion to correct errors. He granted it and uh, made the new order. In order to give that board jurisdiction at this point in time, he would have to file an application for renewal of the license. That would give the board jurisdiction, but he's retired. Uh, he sold his business before this all happened and uh, had no further need for his license. In fact, what he was doing uh, was at the time uh, after he sold his license, or before he sold his license, he did not need a license to operate Pharmacon long-term care pharmacy. He was the owner and manager. He was not preparing prescriptions. So without a need for a license anymore, he just let it expire. <clears throat> if the court has no further questions, we would ask you to affirm the decision of uh, Judge Dietrich. And uh, I, I would like to footnote too, I think this will be my last court appearance in the state of Indiana. I'm planning to retire shortly. So. It's a pleasure to work before you. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. For a long, one exciting career. Years. You may close. So I bet you're hoping you'd start out with a question on your closing, okay? Well, and, and I here, and here it is, Counselor. Okay. <laughs> Just so, what you were uh, waiting for. I suppose you didn't know till the end of Elmer 1 exactly what the interpretation of that statute was, but at some point, didn't the pharmacy board have to understand that if that his license was expired and for him to move forward to get his license back, he'd have to reapply and they, they could, uh, you know, do their investigation and, and refuse to issue it. Uh, they, they knew that at some point in the litigation. Would that be correct? Well, uh, I think... I think Judge Robb was right when she asked uh, counsel that this was an issue of first impression and that there were differing views of that. And, and the state's view was grounded in sort of the enacting statutes. Uh, maybe my question wasn't clear enough, but at some point earlier on in the litigation, they understood it was the uh, appellee's position that my license is not uh, valid. Right. So I, I misunderstood. Yes, absolutely. I think it's been clear. I think we agree that the position he took it even before the board. And you all would have read the statute and, and had a chance to digest that, but still you pursued your action. Right. You could have just walked away, waited till he ever sought reinstatement, run him through the ring or found the felony and then declined to issue the license, but you chose to, to press forward. Well, but I think that speaks to a couple of things that, that are lurking in the background. The, the the General Assembly has, in creating the board and the enacting empowering statutes, pointed out that the, the public interest and the public welfare importance of a well-regulated pharmacy profession in the state of Indiana. And it explicitly said that commissions of a crime that bear on the fitness to practice pharmacy uh, warrant discipline. 
by professional licensing boards. And that's where the, the background information and, and Mr. Elmer's crimes and his federal convictions bear on what the, what the board did. And we know that the General Assembly also enacted a statute that grants the, the uh, board the authority and the powers to do things that are necessary to implement its realm of authority. And one thing that I think was missing, and, and we're not here to relitigate Elmer Wan, but one thing that was missing is the understanding that, yes, he cannot practice pharmacy in Indiana with an expired license, but he could go to Illinois or Ohio or Kentucky and without any professional discipline and without any professional record, that, that there's an opportunity for that state to license him to allow him to open a new compounding pharmacy in that state. Well, federal felony conviction follows him all around the country, all right? So it, it might, but, but you know, there's... That's probably going to catch the eye before a, an administrative action against somebody in a, in a state licensing board. It, it may, but, but many states have, uh, li like... Uh, recognize other states' di professional discipline. And so uh, I think uh, it's not unreasonable to take a belt and suspenders approach, especially in the light of the ambiguity in the law and the ambiguity in, in the authority. And I think the reasonableness of that position is borne out by the General Assembly's swift response that after transfer was denied, they enacted a statutory amendment to expressly give the board authority to do just that. And so I think that speaks to the, the Isn't it just system. easier to acknowledge what your colleague said? The facts outlining his conviction, they are, they're horrible. And you all wanted to make sure and take every step you could to make sure he never practiced as a, you know, operated a compounding pharmacy in this state, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, it, it just seems that's simpler just to say that than to act like it was the General Assembly. That explains the attorney general's actions in this case, their aggressive nature in pursuing, pursuing this action because they believed they were protecting the public interest. Yes? So certainly, the, it's, the pursuit, it's been the pursuit of public interest in protecting the public. I think we can't speak for the, the General Assembly's response, but um, I think they have their own interests. But, but it speaks to a broader interest in protecting the public and making sure that, that people who commit crimes with the state-issued license are not allowed to do so in the future. Um, and so, and I think that given that it's an issue of, of first impression, that reasonable minds can disagree, fees were inappropriate. But I do want to circle back to, I think, Judge Bradford, one of your first questions, which was untangling the procedural posture of this case, is that the issues were bifurcated. We had a petition for judicial review, which arises under state law and allows judicial review of administrative actions. And then we had a full uh, federal civil rights complaint that asserted violations of federal uh, constitutional rights. Those are separate proceedings. And uh, so this is not just fees. The, the, the only thing at issue right now is not fees. We have a full complaint asserting that the board members violated his constitutional rights and he's entitled to relief. Um, that was properly dismissed for the reasons we've talked about, personhood grounds, immunity, and the failure to uh, establish any sort of constitutional right. Um, I, I understand why that was done now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the, the citations to Washington v. Glucksburg, a United States Supreme Court case, and, and the, the Indiana Supreme Court <coughs> case in uh, Carlberg, uh, neither establishes any sort of substantive due process right against licensing proceedings or, or even litigation. They speak, the, the citations used speak more broadly to the idea that there are unenumerated rights, 
But then Dobbs tells us the burden, the standard that must be met to establish an unenumerated right, and that standard has not been met here. And so for that reason, unless there are any further questions, uh, the court should reverse the grant of the motion to correct error and the assessment of fees. Thank you. Gentlemen, thank you. Take nothing from the questions that we ask. We do it to encourage the conversation. With that. All rise. This court is now adjourned.